Well, a little Mother's Day history lesson um, for you this morning. And the mother of Mother's Day is a woman named Anna Jarvis. She started a campaign in 1905, the year that her beloved mother died, to have a recognized holiday in the United States to honor mothers. Quote, the person who has done more for you than anyone in the world. And we would hardly deny that. In 1908, though, the the U.S. Congress rejected her proposal to make an official Mother's Day holiday. They thought that it would, yeah, boo is right. They thought it would create a slippery slope, and they joked that, well, if you have a Mother's Day holiday, then eventually you're going to have to have a Mother-in-Law's Day holiday, and on and on. And just for the record, I'm not opposed to that. My mother-in-law sitting right here. Um... It wasn't until 1914, so nine years after she started this campaign, that President Woodrow Wilson issued a proclamation setting aside the second Sunday of each May to honor mothers, we know as Mother's Day. But although Jarvis was finally successful in founding Mother's Day, she soon became regretful of what Mother's Day became. She grew angry. Excuse me, that this is why we have covers on all of these communion elements for days like today. She grew angry that companies would actually seek to profit from the holiday. After Hallmark and other companies started selling Mother's Day cards, she became so embittered by the commercialization of it all that she protested the holiday she helped begin and even went to Congress and appealed to them to rescind the Mother's Day holiday. She said that the holiday was supposed to be about sentiment, not profit. She wanted people to appreciate and honor mothers personally with the things like handwritten personal notes, not gift buying and pre-made cards. She went so far as to organize boycotts. I'm not making this up. Threaten lawsuits to try and stop this commercialization. She <laughs> this cracks me up. She crashed a candy makers convention in Philadelphia in 1923 to protest. Later that year, she was arrested for disturbing the peace when she protested the selling of carnations. It was a fundraiser for the American war mothers, but it was in association with Mother's Day. (laughs) Now, what got Anna Jarvis so worked up? Was that she saw this simple purpose of her holiday become polluted and be hijacked. Well, in 2 Kings 17, the Lord is angry. You saw this. And He's angry at how His people in His worship have been polluted and hijacked. He, he, he set aside His people for a very simple and specific purpose. They were to be His possession, devoted completely to Him, exclusive devotion, worship, to him as a witness to the nations. <clears throat> and yet, as we've seen over and over in Kings, their worship of God was corrupted, so their witness was corrupted. They, it became commercialized, we could say. That's not a stretch. There was a lot of profit that was made, the false worship in Israel. They worshiped the Lord and golden calves and Baal and Asherah. And Molech, and on and on and on. 
This religious syncretism we say. True God and other things. But the Lord's jealousy for the undivided hearts of his people burned. And he takes action. And he does it here in 2 Kings 17. Now let me just pause real quick. A side note. Don't quote me later this afternoon when you try to justify your lack of gift buying for your mom. Um, the coupon for a hug thing or something like that. <laughs> Uh, that's not my point. I'm all for Mother's Day syncretism and just not religious syncretism. Okay, that was just needed to insert that. Um, Second Kings, you, if you've been tracking with us, and even if you haven't, just just listen. Second Kings is part of is, is part of that history uh, history portion of the Old Testament. Those history books. But we think of history. We think of like we studied in school. It's kind of a cold, dispassionate. Recounting of facts, memorizing dates and events and people and places, those kinds of things. That's not it, though. This is Kings is preached history. It, it, it is true to the facts, but it, 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 its purpose is to deliver a message. And the first intended audience of the book of Kings, first and second Kings, was that group of Jews who were captive in Babylon. They'd been exiled, those the tribe of Judah exiled in Babylon. And 2 Kings is going to end by telling how they ended up in Babylon. That's how the book will end. But the writer here is, as it were, he's standing at ground zero in Jerusalem. We, if any of you have been to New York City, and, and, and that, is, that is, has to be the place that you go now. You stand at ground zero. And you just see what has happened. And you left asking questions. And it brings it fresh. But... The writer is is standing at ground zero. He's looking at the ruins of the city, looking at the temple as it's still smoldering. And and he's asking two questions, basically, which is what the whole first and second Kings is about. What happened? What happened? And where do we go from here? How, How did we get here? What went wrong? And how can we make sure that we don't ever make the same mistakes again? And that's what Kings is about. It's a, it's a historical polemic. And so this chapter is one place in Kings where the writer, he just gets all on the pulpit and starts pounding. And he says, you need to listen. This is, this is what went wrong. This is, I want you to know what, what corrupt worship costs. And so he's, and he's saying this to them because they are in Babylon. They're surrounded by... Uh, in, in un, innumerable idols in Babylon, pagan Babylon. And he's urging his people, God's people, saying, preserve your identity. Worship the Lord alone. Don't you remember what it costs if you don't? That's what this whole book of Kings is about. So I think that's important because that's a message we need to hear today too. Our whole world is Babylon, we could say. Now, I'm not trying to spiritualize that, but we're strangers and aliens in an idolatry-filled world, brothers and sisters. We need to see what went wrong. We need to see how God's worship was derailed. And it is written for our example and for our admonition, because we need to remember what it costs. We need to learn from their mistakes. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to Walk through this text. We'll make specific application to moms along 
the way but and to all of us. But the big idea of this passage is this, is that corrupt worship, it first corrupts us and then it costs us. That's what we'll see throughout this text. It corrupts us, it costs us. This morning we're going to see the end of Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember, kingdom divided, northern ten tribes, Israel, southern two tribes, Judah. But this is the end of the northern kingdom. The writing has been on the wall now for 200 plus years. And so back in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 15. I know you remember that. You can quote it probably. Yeah, right. But the prophet Ahijah told Jeroboam, the first king of the divided nation, He says, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and will root up Israel out of this good land and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they provoke the Lord to anger. And God is proven, though, to be gracious and patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love throughout this king's narrative. And and so judgment has been delayed, but listen... Judgment delayed is not the same thing as judgment dodged. It's not. God's patience is not to be mistaken for his permission. And so the structure of this text, what we'll find, and just let me give you the road map and then we'll walk through, is is that the how, we'll see in verses 1 to 6, the how and the what of judgment. What what happened? In verses 7 to 23, we're going to, the writer's going to lay out the why. Why did this happen? And then in 24 and following, and we're really going to, that's going to be the introduction to next week's sermon, so just relax when we don't get there. It's, 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 it's the wake of judgment. What, and it's going to describe after Israel is, is deported and sent out and scattered among the Assyrian Empire, the residents that the Assyrians relocate into Israel, what life is like there. And it's an ugly picture. But in verses 1 to 5, we're introduced to the last king of the northern tribe, Hosea. Now his name, his name promises what he does not provide. His name means salvation. But in fact, he's the king under which the nation is dismantled. And so verse 1, in the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. No surprise there, is it? I mean, this is just par for the course with the kings of Israel. Every king has done evil in the sight of the Lord. But then the text says in verse 2, Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he's, he's bad, but he's not as bad as the others. And that's interesting. Because he's the king under which the whole nation is dismembered. And, and, and this tells us something. This is not the case of Hosea being so bad. That God finally just says, all right, enough. That's not it. It's not that Israel crossed some line under Hosea that they hadn't crossed before. This is not the angry dad on the road trip where he says, all right, that is it. The last straw. And he pulls the car over. And I'm not going to tell you what happens from there. But, um, but this judgment that Israel experienced, it was cumulative. It was... It's been building and building as generation after generation after generation has has broken God's covenant. Generation after generation of unfaithfulness, of despising God's law, of ignoring God's wisdom, of rejecting God's discipline. And so it's it. That's it. And so how does it go down? It's described in verses 3 to 6. And we 
find the Assyrians here. The Assyrians are on the march, and they are the dominant power of the world at this time. Nobody gets in their way. And so they come against Israel, and Hosea does what has been done by many kings before. He tries to pay, him, pay the king of Assyria off. He, it's his protection money. This is kind of like, here, take my lunch money. Don't punch me, please. Uh, this is basically what he's doing. The Assyrians were busy. They could only fight so many battles in so many places. And so if a, if a people decided, hey, we'll pay some tribute to you, then they would leave those nations alone if it was sufficient. And so that's just an ongoing year-by-year arrangement, the text says. But for some reason, verse 4 says that Hosea decided to stop paying this tribute. Bad decision. And he sends envoys to Egypt and He's hoping that Egypt can kind of back his play against the Assyrians. But when the tribute stops coming in and they hear that Israel's pandering to Egypt, then the king of Assyria decides it's time to mete out justice. And so verse 4, the end of verse 4, Therefore the king of Assyria shut him, Hosea, up and bound him in prison. And that's the last thing we hear. We don't know what happens to him from there, but I bet you it wasn't good. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Hebor, the river of Gozan, and in the city of, cities of the Medes. And, and with that, the ten tribes are no more. That's it. I mean, I mean the writer... He spares us of the horrific details of what this actually involved. But it would have been nightmarish. The Assyrians were known for their brutality. They slaughtered people. They sieged cities. They burned and pillaged these villages. Those who survived the initial massacre were taken away and deported into all kinds of, all different parts of Assyria, as is indicated here. Families ripped apart because the able-bodied men would have been used as slaves and building roads and buildings and parts of the empire. The entire culture, the entire way of life is just dismantled. And the, the Assyrians had this practice of, of resettling the peoples they conquered and just mixing them in with other peoples and moving them around so that they would completely lose their identity, their national identity as a people. This was purposeful. So the nations basically dismembered, just absorbed into the Assyrian Empire's melting pot. That's it. But that's not what really matters to the writer of Kings. I mean, you think about it, you just... He gives very few details in these six little verses as to the how, the what. But he spills a lot of ink explaining why it happened. And that's where our attention will be. And and this is where our outline will come into play. When you read verses 7 to 23, it's almost as if you're reading God's defense of his actions here. It's like he's writing an incident report. He's trying to show how that type of force was justified and necessary against Israel. And his case is airtight, as we'll see. Now, from, from a human perspective, we can, we can explain the fall of Israel in any number of ways, but the writer basically says there's only one underlying issue. There's only one thing that really matters, one problem. And the problem is clear in this chapter by the repetition of one word, 
It's the word worship. It just reverberates through this chapter. It may be translated as fear in your translations, but it's the same word. It's worship. There's this long list of Israel's sins, but the central indictment against them is they broke the first and second commandments of God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols and worship them. And this is what we know about all sin problems. All sin problems are worship problems. They are at the very root. We have wrong behavior. We do wrong things because we we have mixed up worship. We worship wrong gods. All sin is, is rooted in worship. And idolatry is not confined to shrines and pagan temples and carved images that we carry around in our pockets or go to the high places and worship. It's not it. We have idols in our hearts, Scripture says. Things we look to for, the, for what only God can give. We look to these things and we trust them for joy, satisfaction and security and comfort and peace and hope and, and salvation. Those are idols of the heart. Let me just speak to the moms, and I'll make application to others too, but um, again, here, oh, here he goes. Here goes the preacher just loading it up on me now. Just hang on. We'll get back to the grace and, and the, the gospel part. But I just, just consider the potential idols that are, are crying out for your attention and your admiration and your worship. It's the idols of approval, idols of peace and quiet. <laughs> Yeah, amen. Uh, safety. Safety for your children. Comfort. Image. How you appear as a mom. Achievement. Possessions. Food. Body image. Entertainment. Being liked. I mean, then we could just go on and on and on. You want to just... I know I've given a list similar to this, but I just customized some things kind of for moms to just think through. Is this an idol in my life? Just, let me just give you a few questions. Seven here. If something's consuming too much of your time and thought, it might be an idol. Another thing, if you get angry or grumpy or crabby or whatever you want to call it, when you don't get something that you want, that thing that you want might be an idol. If you measure your worth as a mom, or if you think that other people measure your worth as a mom, that says more about you than it does about them. But if you measure your worth as a mom based upon your success in some area of your life or failure, then that area might be an idol. If there's something that's important to you and it becomes a litmus test for how you view other moms, that thing might be an idol. So maybe it's diet. Maybe it's a schooling option. But you have this thing that's important to you and you view it as the grid through which you're going to evaluate others. That thing might be an idol. If there's something you constantly worry about losing or if there's something you think you cannot live without, it might be an idol. Six, if there's something you're proud of and you want everyone to know this about you, that thing might be an idol. Finally, and you're glad I'm finally done, um, if there's something you talk about all the time, it might be an idol. But 
But this is this is significant for us to begin to see these things, because when our worship of God is corrupted, our lives become corrupted. And we start incurring great costs. There are costs, costs associated with idolatry. And this is this chapter bears that out. And so idolatry is serious and it is alive and well, brothers and sisters, not just for the moms, for all of us. First John 5.21, John writes, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10.14, My beloved, flee from idolatry. So John, Paul, they're writing to believers. And, and, he, and, he, and so that just tells us we're not immune from the snare of idolatry or from the corruption of it or from the consequences of it. So we need to be careful. Now let's consider... How Israel's worship became corrupted and what we, how we can learn from their mistakes. So the question that we're going to ask, and this is our outline, and we're going, to, we're going to hit this quick. How can our worship become corrupted? And we're going to see how it was corrupted for Israel. First way is this, is we refuse the God who redeems. We refuse the God who redeems. Verse 7, and this occurred, this Dispersion because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared, worshipped other gods. So instead of being brought out of the land and overflowing with this loving, lasting gratitude to God who redeemed them out of bondage in Egypt, they they turned to other gods to look for thing the thing that only God can give. And had provided. It's a slap in the face to God. This is the deal. We need, you need to guard your heart against ingratitude. The drift into idolatry and immorality, it starts right there. We don't give thanks to God for His redeeming grace. I just, just moms, I mean, just make application to you. Do you want to help your children live as faithful Growing, disciple-making disciples of Jesus Christ in this mixed-up, idolatry-filled, corrupt world. You want them to live like that. The first thing they need to see in you is a mom who just overflows with gratitude to God for redeeming grace. That's it. It's not a checklist. I need to be perfect. No, you need to just be in awe of the grace of God, thankful to Him. This is the basis of idolatry there in Romans 1. They didn't, they didn't honor God or give thanks. That was, the, that was the biggest issue with fallen man's problem. They don't need to see a mom who has their act together all the time, who hides all of her struggles and sins. They need to see a sinner who's being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and who just regularly erupts with thankfulness to God for His grace. Jesus, thank you. Just sing it with me. Your, uh, your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Amen. Your kids need to see you in this assembly, in your home, 
in your minivan, singing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Paul says, with thankfulness in your heart to God. Be a woman who never gets over the cross. That's first and foremost. So how can our worship become corrupted? Will we refuse the God who redeems? Second way, we refuse the God who satisfies. The God who satisfies. The writer goes on and he catalogs all the false gods that the people worshipped. In verse 9, he says they built high places for themselves in all their towns. They Verse 10, they set up for themselves pillars and asherim. He goes on and describes the wicked things that they did. Verse 12, they served idols of which the Lord said to them, you shall not do this. In verse 16, they made for themselves metal images of two calves, a son of Jeroboam, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings to the god of Moloch. And they used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. They are looking for everything but God to satisfy them. The only true living God offers himself to them. Lasting, abundant, deep satisfaction. Instead, they run after gods that never satisfy. They always promise what they cannot provide. And instead of satisfaction, they find sorrow. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 16:4: The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's not, that's not what's put on the front, on the packaging of idolatry. No, it says, I'm good, I'm fun, I'm, I'm happy, I'll make you happy. It's a deception. Sorrow, emptiness, death. Our idols always fail to satisfy. They always multiply sorrows. If, you, if money is your idol, you'll never have enough. If, if success is your idol, you'll just live on this treadmill, running, running, running after the next achievement, and you'll never be happy. If, if sexual pleasure is your idol, there's not a single person, there's not a single image, not a single video that's ever going to give you the thrill that you're looking for. If a particular drug is how you think you're going to cope with life, you're, you're, you're not going to be liberated. You're going to be enslaved. And the gods, these gods never satisfy you. They, they say, this is what they say, serve me, serve me, serve me. And you need to preach another message to them. <clears throat> you need to preach Psalm 1611. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Moms, let me just, again, this is for all of us, but moms, just be a mom whose greatest joy and delight is found in living in the presence of God. I mean, I want you to love life. I want you to smile. I want you to laugh. I want you to enjoy the little cute moments. And just, you, you, that's great. And, and, and love all the, the stuff and smile and have fun. But let your kids see that Jesus is your supreme delight. You, you know when they're really going to see this, it's when the storm clouds roll in, trials come, when, when everything else is taken away, when health is gone, when comfort is gone, when money is gone, when security is gone, and they're going to look at you, and may they see in you, God is enough. He's enough. 
I'm satisfied in him alone. The Lord may give, the Lord may take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't refuse the God who satisfies. That's one step towards corrupt worship. So how can our worship become corrupted? Third, we refuse the God who warns. Refuse the God who warns. Israel could not plead ignorance. They knew better. God gave them his law. He sent them prophets. Verse 13, the the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent sent to you by my servants, the prophets. We've seen this prophetic ministry that God sent to his people. But what happened, verse 14, they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. It was not a hearing. They're not hard of hearing. They're hard-hearted. That's that's what it is. That's where it comes from. And as a result of despising God's word and resisting his warnings, verse 15 says they went after false idols and became false. What that tells us, you are what you worship. You are what you worship. Psalm 115.8 says the same thing. Those who make them idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. So worship really does change you. It does. If you're constantly drinking in the love of praise, the love of money, the love of success, it will change you. And in contrast, those who behold the glory of God, Paul says to 2 Corinthians 3.18, they're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Worship changes us. And so God, though, as he's warned us over and over and over in his word about the dangers of idolatry, that's the case he's making with Israel and he's reminding Judah of. And I would say, don't reject those warnings. Turn, Paul says, that's Thessalonians. He's describing what they did, but I'm putting it in terms of an exhortation. Turn from the living, turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So moms, application again. Keep your ear pressed to God's word. Listen to his voice. Listen to his warnings. Listen to his word. He's not been silent. He isn't silent. Don't just avoid being stubborn. Don't avoid not listening. Don't be an active listener to God's voice. In his word, strain to hear him in these pages. Read it. Meditate upon it. Pray through it. Memorize it. Listen to it. And so your kids, your kids, I don't mean your kids need to see some mom who can answer all the Bible trivia questions. That's not, that's not it. Your kids need to see a mom whose heart is responsive to the word. Attention is to it and is changed by it. You have reflexes that say, yes, Lord. Yes, I'll do it. Always being changed by it, conformed to it, having your idols exposed by it. That's what, that's what they need. So how can your worship become corrupted? Final, final response, and we're going to go to the table. We refuse the God who judges. 
We refuse the God who judges. Israel's rejection of God's grace and God's word, it kindles God's anger. And so verse 18, Therefore the Lord was angry, very angry with Israel, and removed them from his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Now God's presence is everywhere. We know that. He's omnipresent. But he chose Israel to be his people in a special way and to dwell among them in a special way in the land. And, and that, yet when their worship is corrupted, he stops doing that. Judah, though, is still present, he says. Verse 23, into verse 23, Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Now, this day is, again, the time the author is writing. Ten tribes are still dispersed. And then in verse 19, he adds another comment about Judah. They also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. Again, he's making his case. And it's just pointing to the coming fate of the southern tribe of Judah. But this is, again, the big idea. Corrupt worship first corrupts us, then it costs us. And this is where we're seeing the cost. The God who redeems, the God who satisfies, the God who warns is the God who judges if he's rejected. And don't don't think you're an exception to the judgment of God. It's not just for some special class of really, really bad people. We're all in that special class of really, really bad people. Scripture makes it very clear. The case is open, is open and shut. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of that, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Death is not the end. Judgment awaits. That's the bad news. But here's, here's the good news. God sent his own son Jesus to pay the wages for our sin. To die in our place on the cross. He bore the judgment for our sin when he suffered and died on Calvary. He, he was punished by God in our place. And so then, therefore, he offers forgiveness. He offers life. He offers salvation as his free gift. How do we take that free gift that God offers us? So we don't have to face his judgment and wrath. When we die, how do we receive it? Do we have to work hard for it? Do we have to clean up our act? Do we have to get our lives in order so we can make our case before God? No, it's, it's very simple. It's belief, faith. You say, say to the Lord, I am a sinner. I am without hope apart from you. I, I, I bring nothing good to this relationship. But I know that Jesus loves me and I know that he died for sinners like me. And, and I trust in what you did to pay the debt for my sin that I could never pay. And, and please forgive me for my sin. Please give me new life. And that's, that's it. It's the turning of your heart and laying aside all that you've trusted in before. Say, I trust you alone, Jesus. And John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So once you see, God's wrath is real. His judgment is certain. And his wrath remains on you and will be poured out for, on you for eternity in hell. If you don't believe in his son and receive eternal life, and I beg you and plead with you to trust him today. If you want to just, after the service, nobody's in the lobby out there. Everybody goes this way. So if you want to just go that way, walk out there in the lobby, We'll have some folks. One of our ushers will 
talk with you or send somebody, bring somebody to talk with you. We'd love to share more about how you can know that you have life and not and won't face wrath. But let me just make one a quick application to moms, and then we're going to go to the table. As moms, make sure that the certainty of divine judgment is a part, a central feature of your worldview. Say that again. Make sure that the certainty of divine judgment is a central part of your worldview. This is what I mean. You, you need to understand that God is a God who does judge. If you're honest in your assessment of this world, as you read the headlines and as you look on what's going on, it's not pretty. So if you're honest with how things are in our world, this gives us hope. God is going to set all things right. He's not going to allow wickedness to go unpunished forever. It also sobers you up. It keeps us from being kind of flighty in life. It, it, it shows us that eternal glory and eternal wrath are, are, are at stake here. It affects how we pray for our children's salvation. It affects how we raise our children, not to just build this little Christian cocoon around them and just, just kind of keep them in there, but to raise them up and send them out as ambassadors of Jesus Christ because this world is dying and lost without Him. So it, 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 it changes everything. We need to have this as a part of our worldview. That this life is not it. There is a day coming. And we need to be preparing our children and preaching the gospel um, till that day comes. Well, we need this table, don't we, brothers and sisters? We need the centering effect that this has on our souls. Because it calls us back to pure worship. It calls us back to exclusive devotion. It roots our devotion to God in His redemption. And so we need this. The Lord's table is, the one word we use is Eucharist. It means thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the, as we said, it's like the anti-venom to idolatry. And so let's eat, let's drink, let's remember, let's give thanks to our Lord Jesus Christ together as we, as we purify our worship to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, prepare our hearts, God, for this table. And may we, um, may we not be silent to your voice as we eat and drink, but listen to what you speak to us through the bread, through the cup, and the words that are spoken uh, as we remember Christ together, Lord. May this have a purifying effect on our souls today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.